0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this episode, we continue our study of John's Gospel from chapter 18, verse 28. Jesus has been arrested and placed on trial by the Jewish leaders who are plotting to kill him to resolve their current political crisis. Let's read now from verse 28. They then led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They hid themselves and did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could still eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfil the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In the last episode I introduced the idea of sacred space, the idea of a special place where God rules and all things are ordered just as they should be. This place acts as a microcosm or model if you like for the rest of creation, but without the chaos and disorder. I mentioned that these places play an important role as they allow us to leave behind the stress and disorder of our everyday lives and find peace and centre ourselves. The events in this passage take place during the Passover festival, which functions as a sacred space for the Jewish people. This festival commemorates the Jewish people's liberation from their Egyptian oppressors and their birth as a nation. So the Passover festival celebrates Israel's freedom and identity under their God who saves them. It's a time for the Jewish people to leave behind their struggles and concerns to remember who they are and where they've come from. The Passover's origin story sees each Jewish household kill a lamb, paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses, and share a meal together. That very night the destroyer travels throughout the land of Egypt and kills every firstborn in every household, except for those houses which have the blood on their doorposts. In this way, the Israelite people are saved from the destroyer. When Pharaoh the king of Egypt discovers what has happened, he sends all of the Israelites out of Egypt, and finally they are set free from his tyranny. But, of course, before Israel can be set free, there is a final showdown in which Moses parts the sea and the Israelites walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. When Pharaoh and his soldiers chase them through the sea, the walls of water collapse down on them, thus setting Israel free. The Passover festival functions as a sacred space in which the people of Israel gather to commemorate and reflect on this experience. Notice that the Jewish people would not enter the governor's quarters because they did not want to be defiled, which would prevent them from participating in the Passover festival. How would entering the governor's quarters defile them? The Jewish people of Jesus' day believe that entering in the dwelling places of non-Jews, they'd become ceremonially defiled and unacceptable to God, which meant they could not participate in the Passover festival. The ancient people believed that religious impurity could be caught like a virus. So if you hung out with impure people, you would catch the impurity and then God would reject you also. For this reason, religious people feared impurity and they avoided it at all cost. Think about the current measures being taken in our world to avoid the spread of coronavirus. In Jesus' day, ritual impurity inspired a similar panic and fear. The problem with this system is that it isolates and excludes those who are impure. They are treated as a threat to the community's well-being and may be scapegoated within a mimetic crisis. But notice that Jesus intentionally dwells with those who are considered impure, and in so doing he opposes and rejects the thought patterns which attach stigma and fear to ritual impurity. He visits a Samaritan village and dwells with them, which no pious Jew would have ever done in his day. Jesus' example challenges us to step outside of our comfort zones and to connect with the untouchables, the unapproachables, and build relationships with them who, out of fear and rejection, have been expelled from their communities. Although the Jewish leaders do not want to be in the Roman governor's presence, they still want him to do their dirty work for them. Pilate protests and tells the Jewish leaders to take away Jesus and judge him according to their own law. But the Jewish leaders are not happy with this arrangement. They want Jesus to die and state executions could only be approved by the Roman governor. The Jewish leaders insist that Jesus is a troublemaker, but they cannot bring a legitimate charge against him. This observation is significant because the arbitrary nature of Jesus' persecution is typical of a communal scapegoat. I mentioned that the lamb is also central to the Passover festival. It is the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorposts of the Israelite households before the lamb was roasted and shared as a communal meal. With this background, it seems important that Jesus is introduced in chapter 1 of John's Gospel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just as the Passover Lamb saved the firstborn Israelites, so now Jesus will save the world by exposing the lie of mimetic rivalry. For John, Jesus is the true Passover Lamb to which the Exodus account points. Let's read on now from verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. We've seen throughout John's Gospel that the world is caught up in mimetic rivalry. As they engage in mimetic rivalry with each other, kingdoms rise and fall. But in Jesus' kingdom, there is no mimetic rivalry. For this reason, Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Jesus is not playing the same game as Pilate because he is not leading a revolution to overthrow the Roman government. Now this is what Jesus means when he says that my kingdom is not of this world. After establishing that he is no threat to the Roman political establishment, Pilate attempts to release Jesus, but the crowd unite as one against Jesus, calling for his execution. Mimetic rivalry has drawn the crowd together. Widespread imitation throughout the crowd has united them against Jesus, their scapegoat. The crowd would rather see Barabbas, a dangerous criminal, released if it means that their innocent scapegoat, Jesus, will die. Reading now from chapter 19 verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man! When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out wearing his cross to a place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather say, This man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Although he finds Jesus innocent and seeks to set him free, the Jews finally convince Pilate to crucify Jesus by insisting he is a dangerous revolutionary who opposes the Roman Empire. It seems that Pilate was not willing to risk the possibility of a revolution that might take place if he exonerated Jesus and let him go. Pilate joins the persecution as Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion so that the religious leaders might secure political stability. While Pilate is resistant to yield to the Jewish leader's request to crucify Jesus, in the end he is unable to resist the mimetic pull of the crowd. Yet Pilate makes it clear to the Jewish leaders that they are not friends. He exacerbates them, repeatedly referring to Jesus as their King. When Pilate erects a sign identifying Jesus as the King of the Jews, the Jewish leaders ask him to change it, but Pilate obstinately refuses. By identifying Jesus as the King of the Jews, Pilate insults the Jewish leaders and reminds them of their place under his dominion. Of course, the Jewish leaders have professed themselves that they have no other king rather than Caesar. They have proven this statement to be true through their persecution of Jesus. They have rejected Jesus and God as their king to serve the ruling principle of the world mimetic rivalry. Let's read on now from verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfil what the Scripture says, They divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that very hour the disciple took her to his home. Much has been said about Jesus' seamless tunic. For example, in 324 AD, Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, writes a letter warning the churches about a dangerous new doctrine called Arianism, which threatens to split the church. He writes, They have had the audacity to rend the seamless garment of Christ, which the soldiers dared not divide. In this letter, Alexander views Jesus's seamless garment as a symbolic representation of the unity that exists within the Church. This reading works pretty well in the immediate context in which Jesus asks His disciple to care for his mother after his death. In Jesus' community, everyone is connected, just like branches of one vine. If one branch suffers, all the branches suffer. There cannot be any mimetic rivalry in a vine because it is organically knitted together. In the same way, a community that is so connected, everybody cares for everybody else. Jesus' disciple does not protest about his obligation to his own parents or lack of resources, but looks after Jesus' own mother as if she was his very own. The disciples' example contrasts the actions of the soldier who flip a coin to decide which one of them gets to keep Jesus' garment. All of them want it, but unfortunately they will never experience the unity of Jesus' community as long as they are ruled by mimetic rivalry. Reading on now from verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that everything was finished, said to fulfil the scripture, I thirst, a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! And he bowed down his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. The Passover looms large in these verses, which reminds us of Jesus' role as the Passover lamb. Most obviously, we are reminded that it is the preparation day before the Passover, when the lambs were slaughtered. The application of hyssop, dipped in sour wine to Jesus' mouth reminds us of the painting of the doorpost with hyssop dipped in blood on the night of the original Passover. Also, the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken, just as Jesus' bones were not broken on the cross. This is probably what John refers to when he says, The description might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. With this imagery, John points to Jesus as the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. When the soldier pierces Jesus' side, blood and water flow from the wound. Now, if we read this idea of Jesus' blood within the context of of the passover lamb and jesus as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world we see jesus's blood flowing from his side as reminding us of of that blood which was painted on the doorposts of the houses at the very first passover but what about the water well throughout john's gospel we've seen water talked about as giving life, as giving nourishment and we've also seen John refer to water as the Holy Spirit. Most significantly in John chapter 7 on the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stands up and cries out If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, at the cross we see God the Father and Jesus fully glorified. Their character is fully revealed at the cross. So now, we see the water being given we see the water pouring from Jesus's side which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out and given to the people now that Jesus has been glorified so to sum up these ideas the blood flowing from Jesus's side reminds us of the past it reminds us of where Israel hath come from. It reminds us of that first Passover where the blood of the Lamb was painted on the doorposts of the houses and the children of Israel were protected from the destroyer which passed through. But it, the water points forward to the future the new beginning which is taking place, the Holy Spirit which is being poured out upon Jesus' disciples because he has now been glorified on the cross. Digging a little deeper, this Holy Spirit unites people together. It creates a sort of community that we're seeing where Jesus' disciple takes his mother home and looks after her as his own. It creates a sort of community that is organically connected together like a grapevine, where everyone looks after everyone else. So we start to see this idea of moving forward from a past where there is us versus them, there is Egypt versus Israel, there is the destroyer that makes the distinction between the children of Egypt, which must die, so that the children of Israel can be liberated. See, we're still on this scapegoat mentality. This is the same mentality Caiaphas uses when he explains that Jesus must die so that the nation of Israel can live. It's the same mechanism operating back here in Exodus as is operating here on the cross. But this is the new creation which is moving forward, the Holy Spirit, the water that is pouring from Jesus's side opens our eyes because jesus and god have now been glorified we can see what god is truly like and now we can see that it's not about us versus them it's not about egyptian versus israelite the holy spirit breaks down these distinctions so that we can be united all together as one let's talk a little bit about the other scripture which john quotes they will look upon him whom they have pierced. This is a direct quotation of Zechariah 12 verse 10, which reads, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look upon me, on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn notice again that the firstborn reminds us of the night of the passover narrative on which all the egyptian firstborn were killed moreover this verse describes a moment of awakening the inhabitants of jerusalem that is the people of israel receive a new spirit a spirit of grace which opens their eyes to see the innocence of the victims they have persecuted The people discover a newfound empathy for their victims. The people of Israel regret and mourn for the harm they caused through their violent actions, so powerfully that their grief mirrors the cries of the Egyptians who lost their firstborn on the night of the first Passover. Such is the power of Jesus' death upon the cross, because it exposes the horror and destruction caused by mimetic rivalry. Jesus' words, I thirst, on the cross, and the soldier's response of giving him vinegar or sour wine to drink, reminds us of Psalm 69, verse 19. Let me just read a few verses of that. You know my reproach, and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. In this psalm, the writer essentially cries out to God for help because all of his friends, all of his acquaintances have ganged up against him, they've surrounded him. He has become the scapegoat. I Thirst, recalls this idea. It's the cry of the scapegoat. It's John's way of saying, look at Jesus. This is what's going on. Everyone has surrounded him. They have banded together to persecute him. By echoing the imagery of Psalm 69, John reminds his readers that Jesus also has been unjustly persecuted as a communal scapegoat. In case we missed it, Jesus also quotes part of Psalm 22, which is another anthem of the scapegoat. This Psalm talks about, again, somebody's community banding against them, surrounding him like ravenous dogs or ravenous wolves. They have persecuted him, they're fighting against him. This person says things like, I'm wasting away all my bones are out of joint. I'm full of sorrow, I'm a worm and not a person. And through this language, the psalmist expresses his horror and sorrow in the midst of persecution. But this is not the end of the story. The psalm goes on to say that the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. They'll come to praise the Lord. He says that all the ends of the world will come to the Lord and people that have not yet been born will come and serve him. In other words, there's something new birthed out of this ordeal, out of this poor scapegoat's persecution. Something new is coming to pass. And so Jesus' words on the cross, I thirst, remind us that the persecutors do not have the last say. The persecutors will not win out in the end. Yes, this is horrible. Yes, this is mimetic rivalry at its most ugly, but something new is breaking through on the cross and Jesus's words remind us that something new and beautiful is coming. Thanks again for joining me. On the memetic exegete podcast if you'd like to continue the conversation you may do so on the memetic exegete facebook group until next time may the lord bless you and keep you